Good evening, church. I'm Drew Most. I'm thrilled to be joining you from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Thanks to the wonders of technology, I'm here in my translation office, joined by the, oh, this side, the patron saint of Bible translators and biblical scholars, Saint Jerome. He's there dutifully working. Um, and so the both of us, we are thrilled to be with you this evening to talk about Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Christ fulfills the law. And I was so honored when Julian asked me if I would talk about this passage. Um, in my work as a translation consultant here in Cameroon, I'm working with three teams to help them translate the Bible into their local language for the first time. Um, one of those teams, we recently finished the New Testament, which should be published next year. The other two teams, we're currently working on the Old Testament. They published their New Testaments a number of years ago, and now we're steadily working through the Old Testament. Now, one of these teams, we're currently in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy, as you will know, is the fifth book in the five books of Moses, what we sometimes call the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. And... So with this team, we've walked through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Now we're in Deuteronomy, and the name Deuteronomy itself means second law. You'll remember that in chapter 1, um, Moses is on the plains of Moab with the people of Israel, and they're, they're, they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses starts to explain this law. And he, he, he starts laying out for them once again everything that's contained in Exodus and Leviticus, everything pertaining to how the people of Israel should conduct themselves amongst the neighboring peoples to whom Yahweh has not revealed uh, himself. And so he's repeating all this law. He's instructing them. He's kind of extending the law in a way as they're about to enter into the promised land. Now, working with this team, the one who we're, we're currently in the book of Deuteronomy, they're the Chidi team. Um, after, having been, after having looked at all five of these books together, the thing that they came away with, the thing that they at the moment have been struck the most by is the role of the donkey. And I was so surprised to hear them say this, but we were, we were working in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and we came across this verse. If you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen down on the road, do not ignore it. Help him lift it up. And the translators just started laughing. They couldn't believe it. And they said something to me um, like, every time that God talks about animals, the donkey is always there. Now, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but for them, they, they just find this hilarious that the donkey is mentioned, there's constant mention of the donkey in the law of Moses. Because you see, for them, in their culture, um, they consider donkeys unclean. Now, Jews consider donkeys unclean as well, but for the Hedi people, you will not find a donkey in their villages. They want nothing to do with them. Um, the donkey has no place in their culture, kind of like a pig. They don't have pigs, they don't have donkeys, they just consider them unclean, unpure, and unwanted. Now, what's intriguing about this is that, like I said, the Jews as well considered the donkey unclean, but the, the donkey played a key role in the life of your average 
Israelites. And for them, the law had stated in Leviticus and again in Deuteronomy that the donkey was to be considered impure, unclean for food. It was unclean because it um, didn't have a divided hoof, a cloven hoof, and it does not ruminate. It does not chew on its cud. And these were the two criteria that uh, they were supposed that Yahweh gave them to evaluate whether animals were clean or unclean for food. And so they were not allowed, the, the Israelites were not allowed to offer donkeys to him as a sacrifice. And this was even though he had told them, um, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, into the promised land, as he swore to you and your ancestors and gives it to you, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb, all firstborn offspring of the livestock you own, that our males will be the Lord's. Now that's found in Exodus 13. The significance of this was to commemorate that Yahweh was bringing his son Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he did so by a strong hand. And so Exodus 13, 15 gives the reason for why the, the reason why the Israelites were to pre present the firstborn to him, because it says, when Pharaoh stubbornly, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. So the principle we see here is that all firstlings, firstborns, belong to the Lord. What that means is that they were to be offered to Yahweh God in sacrifice. But you see, the catch-22 is that the donkey is impure. The Israelites kept donkeys, and there would certainly be the firstborn of the donkey that they were meant to give to Yahweh, but they couldn't because the donkey was impure. So you can see the trouble that they had. The donkey was impure. They're supposed to give every firstborn to Yahweh, but they can't because the donkey's impure. So this is what Yahweh told them in Exodus, that they were to either redeem it or break its neck. Consider it lost. Now, redeeming it meant that you would offer a lamb in its place and that the donkey gets to go free. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal, a flock animal being like a, a lamb or a goat. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. That's found in Exodus 13, 13. So the donkey receives special mention here in Exodus 13. Um, you must redeem it, the firstborn of the donkey, by offering a lamb in its place, or you must break its neck. But you cannot give the donkey itself to Yahweh because it's unclean. Now, as I was discussing this with the translators and we were laughing about the role of donkeys, I was really struck by the difference the Torah, the law of Moses, makes in a culture. The difference between the Israelites and the Hidi people is that among the Hidi, there is no redemption for the unclean donkey. It's been chased away. The Hidi have no way to redeem the donkey. The Torah, the law of Moses, by contrast, makes donkey redemption possible. The Torah, the law of Moses, provides a way for the unclean to satisfy Yahweh God's legal requirements that he be given the firstborn. This is possible through the death of a lamb in its place. We thus see the difference that Yahweh's revelation, the giving of Yahweh's law, makes. 
It makes a way to satisfy justice and restore worth, to restore value to the impure, the unclean. Now, if dogs today are considered man, mankind's best friend, well, then donkeys would have been more so for the ancient Israelite. It was one of their most basic possessions. This beloved beast of burden uh, carried your crops, carried your supplies, it tilled the ground for you, it pulled your plow, it, it would grind your corn. You could even catch a ride whenever you needed. In fact, making your living may have depended on the survival of the donkey. So what a tragedy it would have been to have to, to welcome a firstborn donkey into your, uh, your barn, into your stable, and just have to break its neck because it's unclean. But no, God made a way to restore its worth even though it was unclean. Um, and we see the difference again that God's revelation makes. God provided a way to, for them to make the unclean clean. And we see that for the Hidi, cultures without Christ's perfect law, cultures without God's revelation, lack a way for sinners, for the unclean, to come back to God. So God's law, God's, God's revelation is grace. In fact, it's God's covenant it's God's covenantal relationship that invites us into his holiness, invites us to participate in his person. So for me, while we're looking at this passage in Matthew 5 this evening, it's helpful for me to understand what Jesus possibly may have meant when he talked about not destroying, but fulfilling the law, thinking about this example of the donkey. Again, the law says that the firstborn must be given to God. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the firstborn. God brought his own firstborn into the world. That's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, saying, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, we find in Romans, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Again, Paul says in Colossians, Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead so that he might occupy the first place in everything. And in fact, we Christians are called the assembly of the firstborn. That is, the faithful people of God then, in the past, and now have not only become children of God, but we have been made to share in the rich inheritance of the Son, who is the firstborn par excellence. God's people may have been excluded from local assemblies and associations back in the first century, which were made up of citizens from the towns in which they lived, and Christians today may be excluded from the wider culture, but we are full members of the assembly of the firstborn of the heavenly city. So if the law desires and demands that the firstborn belong to God, then that finds radical fulfillment in Christ. It might look like the original law 
has been destroyed or abolished because sacrifices are no longer being offered. But Christ's perfect sacrifice was once for all time. It was sufficient. And when seen in comparison to the substance of which it is a shadow, it sings. It is fulfilled to overflowing. The unclean cannot be given to God. They must be redeemed or destroyed. But substitutions were permitted, a means of God's grace. And that's what happened in the case of the donkey. And it should be clear how this is satisfied and fulfilled in Christ, how substitutions are permitted, how a lamb can die in the place of the unclean so that the unclean goes free. So in the same way, the gospel teaches us that we who were far off, we who were impure, unclean, have been redeemed by the Lamb. We've drawn near through his redemption. Redemption is being brought out of one state and restored to another through a substitute. Redemption is rescuing someone from a difficult, if not impossible, obligation by means of a payment. Hebrews 9 teaches us that Christ entered into the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's, uh, sorry, that's Hebrews 9, 12 through 15. And if we just keep going with this donkey thing, we see Zechariah 9.9 prophesies the triumphal entry of the Messiah into Israel riding on a donkey. Not a war horse, but a donkey. So we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew 21.5. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All this talk about donkeys, though, is that really what God cares about? Does God really care about the donkey? Well, yeah, sure. But it's also like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he quotes Deuteronomy. And he talks about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul says this, he says, is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake. So when I'm working with translators and we stumble upon all these passages about donkeys, which to us seem bizarre, these passages are given for our sake to teach us the extent to which Christ has fulfilled the law. So now, diving into our passage to look at a bit more specifics in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, so much could be said about this passage, and we won't be able to cover it all or cover all aspects of it. But the best part about this is, anything I left undone 
you can follow up with Rich, Katie, or Julian, and if I make a mess, I, I can just leave it to them to clean it up. As we've seen over the last number of weeks, the Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, a beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. And that's the title of a recently released book on the sermon. And in her book, Amy Jo Levine says, The kingdom of heaven is not some abstract place with pearly gates and golden slippers, harp music, and a bunch of angels flapping their wings. The kingdom of heaven occurs when people take the words of Jesus in these chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, when people take these chapters to heart and live into them. I find her expression very interesting, not live them, but live into them, kind of um, hinting at a sort of progression in our faith. Now, today's passage, the one that we're going to be looking at this weekend, five, uh, chapter 5, 17 through 20, is really quite overwhelming when we look at the importance of it for not only the way we understand God and what he's accomplishing in Jesus, but also for the way that we understand Scripture. Jesus is going to uh, overwhelm our understanding of who God is. He, in fact, is a God who overwhelms us in a variety of ways. He is overwhelming our understanding of who God is. He is overwhelming our alienation from God. He overwhelms our alienation from one another so that we can be together in community. And he's showing us who we should be as a result of following him. So in this passage, let us think about how Jesus radically transforms our understanding of God and ourselves. And in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is a new Moses. Matthew presents Jesus as a new type of Moses. And it's appropriate that we would be receiving this sermon on a mountain, because Moses gave the people of Israel the law, the, the, the law, the Torah from Mount Sinai. So that Jesus, again, positions himself on the mountain, places him in Matthew's story as a new type of Moses. And if we are his followers, then we are the continuation of the, the, sto we are the, continuation of the story of the people of God being led by a new Moses, Jesus the Messiah. We're going to see in this passage how Jesus interprets the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. This section forms the framework for which we can interpret Jesus's understanding and view of the Bible. Jesus does not oppose what God has said, the law, but Jesus extends and intensifies it. This should be our guide for how to interpret the Old Testament and Scripture in general as well. Jesus invites us to consider not what the God, law of God allows, but what God intends. And here we see coming to fruition, we see the fulfillment of what was prophe prophesied in Jeremiah 31. In this passage in Jeremiah, the prophet is anticipating a new covenant, a new reading of the law, when, when Yahweh God announces, look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will, be, will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is what we see happening here. 
And Jesus starts off in this section with the arresting words, don't think. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. We see in the New Testament, Jesus' very first command is to think again. Because he knew that we are prone to thinking incorrectly. We're not good at tolerating ambiguity. We might think it's either the law and the prophets or Jesus. And you can understand why we would think that because all of our life, if you're a Jewish person in the first century, all of your life you've been seeing a shadow. And then one day you see the substance of that shadow. Will you believe your eyes? It might be hard to square the reality with the shadow that you've been seeing for this many years. Telling yourself, whoa, I never thought it would actually be like this. So Jesus reigns us back in and he invites us to take a closer look not only at him, but his intentions. The intentions of what was revealed in the law and the prophets generations before. It's also possible that what Jesus is saying here should not be taken in its most absolute sense, as if he were saying, I have come to totally destroy the law or the prophets. No, certainly certain aspects of the law have been laid aside. So we find a similar statement, for example, in Matthew 10, 34. He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, surely Jesus did in some sense come to bring peace. So we know that Jesus' statement here, don't assume that I came to bring peace, but a sword. We know that it cannot necessarily be taken in its absolute sense meaning that there's no possible way in which Jesus brought peace. We know that he is the Prince of Peace. So it's not outlandish to think or to say that part of the law or the prophets has been laid aside, even when Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. Now, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish to fulfill. And if you think about it, Jesus is not going to destroy the law and the prophets because they are something that point to him. Jesus has not come haphazardly, irreverently, thoughtlessly to attempt to abolish, overthrow, disregard, or snidely ignore the Mosaic Covenant and God's work among his chosen people. Jesus is not a lunatic revolutionary proclaiming freedom from all sort of moral and ethical constraints. No, Jesus defines his mission in relation to the Hebrew Scriptures. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what could Jesus possibly mean here by fulfill? Since the beginning, Christians have wrestled with what Jesus means here. Christians have wrestled with to what extent should Christians observe the law. And interpreters as well disagree about precisely what Jesus meant by these words. And in fact, even in Jesus' day, there was much debate, much disagreement about what it meant to keep or observe the law. Even today, that continues in all in um, various traditions of faith. So what could this possibly mean? I think here, uh, I've made a list of all these different possibilities. Um, I think it could mean that Jesus is saying that he obeys it completely. He perfectly obeyed the law and the prophets. It could mean by fulfilling the law and the prophets that Jesus is faithfully interpreting them and explaining God's purpose behind them. He himself 
is the fulfillment of the verbal prophecies, like, for example, the passage in Zechariah that talks about the Messiah coming riding on a donkey. We see that fulfilled in uh, Matthew during Jesus' triumphal entry. So verbal prophecies being fulfilled. But even more than that, Jesus is the substance of events like the Passover or institutions like sacri sacrifices, which were foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So with the typology of the donkey, of the firstborn being given to God and a lamb being able to take the place, in some way that whole type, that whole imagery comes to fulfillment, comes to fruition in Jesus. Jesus is the greater lamb that was offered once for all. Jesus is the way that God makes a way for the unclean to be drawn in to his holiness. So when Jesus speaks of uh, fulfilling, he is not suggesting that once he says or does something related to the Old Testament, that that text can be regarded as checked off and checked out. On the contrary, Jesus asserts that the scripture of Israel remains sacred to his followers. When Jesus speaks of fulfilling the law of Moses, he signals that he is drawing out its full implications. Jesus fulfills Torah, the law of Moses, he fulfills it by getting to the core values of the commandments. Things which the law and the prophets, things to which the law and the prophets point, the law and the prophets being shadows, Jesus is their substance. There's so much more that could be said here. Um, the term fulfill here is well chosen because it describes a process of legal interpretation in which individual laws are interpreted in such a way that they are made to fit given situations and circumstances and to facilitate justice. Justice is served when the laws fulfill the purposes for which they were designed. Given the laws and the situations or cases, justice demands to be served. And when that goal is reached, its demands are fulfilled. Particular laws are intended not simply to be complied with, but to be fulfilled by serving as instruments for meeting the demands of justice. Those are, that's to read a quote from um, one commentator. I find this very helpful because in Jesus, justice is satisfied. So if we consider that fulfilling the law means that justice and what God requires is satisfied, there's no greater satisfaction than when God looks upon his son. And so that is the sort of satisfaction that we are welcomed into under the new covenant. So with the coming of Jesus, things simply cannot stay the same. He is the fulfillment of God's story. Jesus is the end goal of the Old Testament. And therefore, Jesus is the, the authoritative interpreter, the one through whom alone the Old Testament finds its valid con continuity and significance. And that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks as Jesus begins to explore commandments related to murder and divorce and all those things. So Jesus is inaugurating a new era, the final time, a new covenant in which God's law, God's Torah, Revelation, and any traditions built upon it is superseded, not in terms of rejection, but fulfillment in a full mode of interiorization of the law, the law written on 
the hearts of his people. And that's what Jeremiah foresaw. He saw in advance that the law would be written in our hearts. And the Sermon on the Mount invites us to internalize what it means to be Jesus' followers, to, to what it means to be subjects in God's kingdom. In verse 20, to skip over some bits, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a lot of implications, there are a lot of questions that we could raise here, but I want us to zero in on the idea of righteousness and what it means that our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. First, what is righteousness? Uh, someone has defined it this way, righteousness is behavior that accords with God's nature, his will, and his coming kingdom. And we see that sometimes this emphasizes justice. This emphasizes doing exactly what the letter of the law says. But sometimes as well, righteousness emphasizes mercy, following the spirit of the law. And this is what we see in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is called righteous for the way that he handles his betrothed wife's pregnancy. Joseph didn't strive to publicly shame her by coldly holding to what the law demanded. That if she had been unfaithful or if something had gone wrong in their betrothal, that he could send her away and she would be subject to public shame. No. Matthew calls him uh, righteous, not for following the letter of the law, but for sending her, for, for, for deciding to send her away secretly. All this was before the Lord actually appeared to him. So in his heart, he had decided, no, I'm not going to put her to shame. I'm going to send her away secretly so she won't be subject to disgrace. Here he chose mercy, and that is what righteousness sometimes demands. Rather than justice, righteousness could demand mercy. Someone else, um, the theologian Tom Wright, has defined righteousness as covenant behavior. That means that righteousness is modeled on the way that God interacts with his people. In God's first covenant with the people of Israel, the, the, the covenant that came through the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, um, God created a relationship of faithful love to his people. And we see as well that Jesus with the new covenant uh, Jesus exhibits a faithful love again, further extend, uh, for, uh, more extensively to his people, welcoming in Gentiles those who were unclean. And so in this same way, our righteousness could be seen in terms of behavior that corresponds to God's faithful love as revealed in the covenant. So what then does it mean that our righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees? Now we have to understand who these Pharisees were. These were, in fact, the super-religious holy people of the day. For the first century reader or hearer of Matthew's Gospel or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, they would have been floored. They would have thought, wow, there is no way that my righteousness can surpass that of the super-religious holy people. This would have come as shockingly bad news that the average person has to be more righteous than these super-holy people. How can I be more righteous than those people? Our right, what Jesus is saying is that our righteousness needs to surpass that of the religious establishment. Our righteousness needs to surpass that of people whom our culture looks upon 
as people in the right, people who are living correctly. And that comes, that sort of righteousness not, comes not through attachment to institutions or texts, but comes from attachment to a person, Jesus. This is a whole person sort of righteousness. It permeates our whole being. It's not mere external obedience to a law, but it's internal transformation. Uh, the theologian Stanley Hauerwas has said that righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees is the sort of righteousness that is subversive, subversive, that seeks to uh, topple or turn upside down the current way of doing things. And he insists that this is not a violent subversion of the current culture because Jesus' pattern certainly was not one of violence. Hauerwas says, rather than violently overthrowing the old order, Jesus creates a people capable of living in accordance with the new order in the old. Jesus is in the business of transforming us so that we are new creation, new creatures with a new sort of righteousness existing in a culture that is fading away, that defines righteousness and right living in a different way. And what this right living will look like, will be laid out in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Gospel. So we'll let Julian and others take it from there to continue to explore what this means. But what are some takeaways, what are some implications for us in what Jesus is saying here in uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20? Scott McKnight, a biblical scholar, in his commentary on this passage, he has noted three ways in which we can live or live into this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He first talks about ethics. He says that we should live differently. Jesus is the new definition of purity. He is the one who makes clean. And that means that laws concerning purity are now secondary to him. It is not what enters the mouth, food, but what comes out of the mouth that makes someone clean. And what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And it is the heart that matters most of all, this whole person righteousness. Jesus wants his followers, he wants followers who are purified from the heart inside out. So kosher food laws can be observed from a clean heart, but if the heart is clean through contact with Jesus, being made clean by Jesus, then whatever one eats cannot make you unclean. So we see that the priority of what Jesus is saying here, here and elsewhere in the Gospels, is our internal disposition, our internal makeup, rather than just external purity of not eating pork or not interacting with donkeys. No, it's what's on the inside that counts. So Jesus is uh, showing us a new way. He's extending these. He's the new definition of what it means to be pure. Secondly, McKnight points out that in this passage, the way that we can live this passage is by reading the Bible differently. Read Scripture differently. As a result of what Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that we do not read the Bible rightly until we learn to read it as the story of Israel that comes to completion, comes to fulfillment in the story of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, McKnight notes that we can live this by being transformed, living differently, swimming against the cultural current. We can easily run into the trap 
of thinking that the law of the land, whether that be in the UK or in Cameroon or in the United States, we can easily fall into the trap that thinking that legislation, what has been legislated by our local government, is our moral compass. But what is legal is not the same as what is moral or, uh, or what is right. The Christian's morals are not determined by whether something is legal or corresponds to the constitution of any given nation, by but determined by uh, what the story of God in the Bible reveals. And for me, these three ways, these three ways to live the story are um, are exemplified in this book that has recently been released that I've been reading. And I know we're almost out of time here, so I'm just going to wrap up with this. This will be the last thing. This book that I've been reading here is called um, Reading While Black by Esau Macaulay, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. I have just been fascinated by this book, especially in connection with studying this passage about how Christ fulfills the law and the implications of what Jesus are sa is saying, how this book fits in with all of that. Talking about ethics, talking about living differently, reading scripture differently, and um, swimming against the cultural current. In reading While Black, Esau Macaulay, as a young African-American biblical scholar, is reflecting on the way that African-Americans have read scripture throughout the centuries as a result of being enslaved people or previously enslaved people. And in his conclusion, he says, I have tried to put into print a habit or an instinct that defies easy description. You capture hints of it in black songs and prayers. You can find it in our sermons and prayer meetings that stretched long into the night. It exists around dinner tables, at gravesides, and in speeches that stirred the conscience of a nation. It includes a patience with the biblical text rooted in the confidence that God has willed our good and not our harm. This tradition of Bible reading, he's talking about the way that African Americans have traditionally read the Bible. He says, this tradition of Bible reading is canonical and theological at its core placing its greatest hopes in the character of God as it emerges from the entirety of the biblical story. It builds on the great truths of God as creator, liberator, savior, and judge. The, the tradition of biblical interpretation is dialogical, clearly beginning with the concerns of black Christians, but being willing to listen to the scriptures as God speaks back to us. We have a patience with the biblical text born of its use against us. We have had to wrestle like Jacob until the text delivered its blessing. In his book, he, addressed, he addresses questions like, does the Bible have a word to say about the creation of a just society in which black people can flourish free of oppression? He asks, does the Bible speak to the issue of policing, the role of the police, a, a constant source of fear in black communities? Uh, Macaulay asks, does the Bible provide us with the warrant to protest injustice when we encounter it? Does the Bible value ethnic identity? Does God love blackness? Does God love Africans, black people, people of, uh, of African heritage? What shall we do about the pain and rage that comes with being black in America? What about slavery? Did the God of the Bible sanction what happened to us? And there he's talking about the history of chattel slavery in America. And I know this is very specific 
culturally specific to um, reading the Bible as an African-American, but he is somebody who is reading the Bible through this lens of how Christ fulfills and extends and draws out the implications of the law. Uh, Macaulay says this, the point is that the very process of engaging the scriptures and expecting an answer is an exercise in hope. It is an act of faith that has carried black people through unimaginable despair toward a brighter future. The Bible has been a source of comfort, but it has also been more. It has inspired action to transform circumstances. It has liberated black bodies and souls. And so we see that in the Sermon on the Mount as well, Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. Jesus is in the business of being a liberator. If God through Moses was a liberator, how much more so is Jesus the new Moses a liberator? So I invite you to come to Christ and find that liberation. Um, read the Bible in a fresh new way. Live differently. Swim against the cultural current, not defining what's right by what the culture says, but what the, the, um, the new sort of whole being righteousness that Jesus give, gives, says, and guides us to do and live and act. So thank you so much, EFCC. Sorry if I went way over time. Thank you for your patience. It's ironic that in a passage where Jesus talks about fulfilling justice, fulfilling the law, that I just felt like with everything going on in these four verses, there's no way that I could do justice to this passage. But thank you. It's been an honor, and I will look forward to um, being live with you tomorrow on Sunday. All right. God bless, and have a good evening.